When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello and welcome to the Political Party Podcast, back again after the Edinburgh Festival. I hope you enjoyed the episodes recorded up there with Kezia Dugdale and Nicola Sturgeon. This episode features Richard Carr, who is a senior lecturer in history and politics at Anglia Ruskin University and author of the new book, March of the Moderates, uh, a book which assesses a phrase I haven't heard for so long, the third way. Uh, a political creed championed by Tony Blair and Bill Clinton, and the book charts their personal and political rise and fall in their relationship. And a lot of this discussion with Richard is about if there's any hope for a, a third-way style relationship or direction these days and where, if anywhere, it would come from. So I hope you enjoy the conversation. It's great to be back. You can email the show, politicalpartypodcast at gmail.com. Um, I should say this was recorded a, a couple of weeks ago and obviously things are moving very fast out there. We talk a, a certain amount of contemporary politics, but it's a mix of uh, the present day and, of course, the, the, the main uh, bulk of the book is about a particular period in time. So hopefully it's not too uh, dated already. Uh, but Richard was a superb guest and it's always great to talk with academics because it's a different perspective Um or can be a slightly different perspective from those of us not in academia. Um, and they maybe take a, a slightly different view of uh, the tides of history and of, and of changes and things. So it's just always good to get an academic view of a particular snapshot in time. So uh, it was, uh, as you can imagine, the book is absolutely right up my street. Uh, and I hope that even if it's not particularly up your street, you will enjoy the conversation anyway. And uh, Richard was a brilliant guest. Uh, uh, news, um, I'm doing some... Uh, London dates of my uh, the show I've just brought back from the Edinburgh Festival, Brexit Pursued by a Bear. I'm back at the South Bank Centre. Beautiful room, the Purcell room there, on the 6th of October. Uh, and I'm delighted to be doing King's Place the week after, on the 12th of October. Uh, tickets for both of those uh, you can get uh, from my website, mattford.com slash live. You, if you click in the show notes of this, you'll be able to see um, uh, the tickets there. And you can also buy Richard's book, March of the Moderates. For now, I'll leave you with Richard Carr. Welcome to The Political Party. I'm delighted this week to be joined by Richard Carr, Senior Lecturer in History and Politics at Anglia Ruskin University in Cambridge and author of his new book, March of the Moderates, Bill Clinton, Tony Blair and the Rebirth of Progressive Politics. Who would be into such a thing? <laughs> Richard, um, you, you may not be surprised to hear this book is right up my street. Sure. And I love it. <laughs> um, it. As you have probably guessed, um, so it's, um, it's a delight to talk to you about it. Um, firstly, what made you want to write about this? Um, well, yeah, I realise I'm slightly preaching to the converted here. But, um, well, essentially, I had the idea for the book around September 2015 when Corbyn won the Labour leadership. Um, however, it really only got going after I finished my previous book, which is biography of Charlie Chaplin, completely different topic, but uh, in the middle of 2017 and when post-Brexit, before the 2017 election, when politics became really, really, really polarised, not just Corbyn on the left, but also the right going into all kinds of uh, crazy things we're still putting up with now. Uh, and so I wanted to make the case of that moderate centre, right, in the 1990s, because I think both the left kind of slag off the Blair-Clinton era, they say they didn't do enough, the right view them as these sort of namby-pamby liberals who did too much, but actually there's a lot good from that era, including things that a lot of politicians agree about today, like the national minimum wage, like investing in public services, whether of course they do it or not is different, but um, I think there's a lot to borrow from this era, actually. I think the achievements of Blair and Clinton were real, were substantive, benefited millions of people's lives, and it's about time someone made that case, so I thought I would. And in terms of the word moderate, it can be seen... <laughs> it, it, it is troubling... Well, not troubling, but it, it, it can be... Um, 
it can be controversial in the sense that moderate is inherently seen as a positive thing. Mm. And by definition, if you are moderate, the people who disagree are extreme. I mean, do, mm. do you think the word itself is, is, is politically difficult or not? Well, not particularly. I mean, I think it's it genuinely describes where these figures situate themselves, right? Between a kind of hard left, Michael Foot, nationalise everything, tax everything, uh, have very uh, poor defence policy, and indeed versus the free market right of Thatcher and Reagan. So actually, they did kind of moderate both within their own parties, right, between sort of extremist forces uh, on the left and Labour Party, but also in the country between Foot and Thatcher. And that was essentially the project, right, to do... To do the old aims of labour, of, of redistributing opportunity and to some degree redistributing income and wealth, but through new means, through engaging with the market, through engaging with voters fundamentally, how people actually voted in the, in the 1980s wasn't for Michael Thurt, it was for Margaret Thatcher. And sometimes you have to look at the way people are voting rather than what the people in your party actually think. And in terms of your own politics... Yeah. Um, I, I guess, based on what you said, that you would place yourself in a similar ideological position to yeah. Blair and Clinton. Was that always the way, or were you a, <laughs> were you a lefty radical in your youth? So I'm giving I'm giving a talk in a, in a few weeks' time, actually, called Tony Blair was right, right? Which is <laughs> wing deliberate, exactly right. That's the thing. Either he was correct or he was of the political right. I mean, I always found some of the debates against New Labour a bit odd, right? I mean, I could totally understand things like Iraq and people taking a principal stand against that, of course. But things like, if you look back at things like ID cards, I mean, that was such a huge deal in 2005. And actually, its political relevance in terms of how it would affect people's lives, i.e. not that much, its cost. These are, these. I always found it slightly odd the degree to which there was this noise against against new labor and i think that that's a bit of a problem right for for the media because if you just slag off everything then your words almost have no meaning right and so when more dangerous people come along like like trump for example from the right you have less currency to to criticize people because you criticize everything and so I, I always found this a bit a bit strange i mean it's always a book i wanted to write ultimately but as a historian you kind of have to wait a for people to be willing to talk about it <laughs> and b for for archives to open up and papers and that kind of thing so I'd always wanted to write this book, but now seemed a good time, both in terms of current politics and the sources available. Just in terms of ID cards, do you think that was so controversial because of the time at which it was mm. suggested? You know, this was mm. a third-term debate. Yeah. This was a sense that Labour was drifting to the right. John mm. Reid was Home Secretary. Mm. You know, people thought actually, um, you know, Labour was in a in a, in a you know. Drifting so far away, I don't necessarily agree with that analysis, but I remember mm. at the time it was seen as the final proof that Labour had mm. become the Tories. Mm. Well, it's also heavily tied into the whole question of uh, of immigration, right, and the expansion of of the EU. I mean, if you look at Progress, for example, the think tank are sort of bringing back ID cards, or they did a couple of years ago, as a potential solution to we should stay in the EU, but we might need to bring ID cards in in order to monitor who's accessing public services and that kind of thing. As I say, I think it's somewhat symptomatic of the fact that, of course, there's always going to be political arguments about particular issues, and the Lib Dems particularly thought correctly, I suppose, that there was mileage in that, right? That this sort of authoritarian view some people had about Blair and Iraq, uh, Blair and New Labour after Iraq, could be carried forward domestically in terms of the issue of of ID cards. Um, but yeah, it, it's uh, it does look strange looking back on that now. I have to say. But I, I suppose, you know, there are so many things, as with any, and not that doesn't just apply to politics, but whether it's the cat bin lady or, you know, <laughs> yeah. whatever the rows of the time big, are. Big issue, absolutely. <laughs> these things at the time are the most important thing in the country. Yeah, yeah, sure. A couple of months later, you go, why were we so bothered? I mean, obviously, I don't justify putting cats into bins. <laughs> but, you know, that's given, on the record, that's good. That's yes, good. The, um, the, the coverage perhaps was disproportionate. Yeah. Um, you tweeted recently about the book, just some of your own thoughts um, mm. uh, about it. And um, something you said really intrigued me. Um, You said, if you want to know, David Miliband and Neil Kinnock's strong reactions to the election of Bush Hmm. or or Clinton's advice to Hillary on Iraq, this is the book for you. Kinnock on Lenny Henry (laughs) is worth a read. Yeah, so um, Neil Kinnock, obviously after he uh, quit as Labour leader, he'd always been very good to Tony Blair and Gordon Brown, kind of helped them on their way up. Uh, and so he was still in touch with Blair when he was Labour leader. Didn't agree with him on everything, but they got on well. And obviously Blair was about to win an election, so Kinnock was very uh, in favour of him. And so in 96, after uh, Blair visits Clinton, and Blair comes back kind of gushing, as you would. It's a very impressive spectacle, very charismatic man. You know, this is the guy who's doing the third-way stuff that 
presumably New Labour wants to copy in a, in a year or two. Um, and Kinnock says, well, that's kind of fine, Tony, but I'm sure he's good at working a room, but... Have you seen Nelson Mandela work a room? Have you seen Lenny Henry work a room? <laughs> you know, the leader of the free world, as Kinnock puts it, has got to be better than a game show host, essentially, mm. is, his, is his read. And Kinnock, you know, is, is, not, is not anti-Clinton, but he's just saying that there has to be more than that to Clinton. And indeed there was, as the book, as the book points out. But yeah, it was a, it's a great, uh, great comparison. You mentioned the third way there, which is at the heart of the book. That's what this the whole idea is. I mean, the period I grew up in, when, when Labour came in in 1997. Mm. I remember at the time all this talk about the third way and it yeah. being this bridge, bet- well, not a bridge between, but an alternative to socialism and capitalism um, or socialism and conservatism. I mean, was it ever a coherent set of ideas, do you think? That's what the book. Uh, that's what the book explores. And so, what I look at, right, is not just what's going on in the states with the new Democrats under Clinton, what's going on uh, in the UK with New Labour under Blair and Brown, but the dialogue between the two. And so, a lot of the book is actually thinkers on both sides of the Atlantic: um, Neil Kinnock and Joe Biden, uh, Blair and Clinton, obviously, uh, Dick Gephardt, who's a famous congressman in, in Missouri, kind of exchanging ideas and coming coming up with a with a common solution. Now, of course. Uh, the difficulty, or rather the difference between Blair and Clinton, is they come to power at different times, mm. right? not just chronologically, but Clinton comes to power at basically when the US economy is really tanking and where he has to massively cut the deficit, which limits, limits what he can do. Blair comes to power at basically the perfect time, right? Yeah. Economy's kind of an upswing. Ken Clark sort of done all right in, on the economy, though. Or maybe they would say that today, I don't know, <laughs> not back in 97. Um, and so. Uh, that bit is different, but I think the sort of common solutions, right, down to things like using tax credits, expanding national minimum wage, being prepared to use the military to overthrow dictators abroad, this is stuff that is that is pickled at, at think tanks like the IPPR and the Fabians, but also just in trips back and forth across the Atlantic, in sharing ideas. And whilst some of it is given this grandiose philosophy later on and, and Tony Giddens and some of these wonderful books, actually... In terms of the people meeting, I think it does does come together earlier, right? Because they're facing the same problem. They're losing a lot of elections and they're losing to the new right, Thatcher and Reagan, basically. And so they need to work it out to solve that. And so a lot of the solutions are the same. In terms of the third way now, mm. because obviously the only other word we have for it here is Blairism, really. Yeah. Would it, is there a future for the third way? And is it? could you still apply it to hmm. UK politics in 2019? The problem with UK politics in 2019, Matt, as, as every interview will tell you, is Brexit obscures everything, right? <laughs> yeah. So in terms of, in terms of uh, massive overarching philosophy, it's really difficult. I mean, what the third way tried to do, right, was use the mechanism of the market, capitalism, which people basically like, but use the tax receipts to pay for stuff they also like, like the NHS, tax credits, whatever it might be. And the problem with Brexit is we don't know how much money we're going to have left. I mean, like, forget everything else, right, in terms of undermining our economy and the ability to pay for that stuff. It's really difficult. Um, the third way was also about globalization and engaging with the world. And for all the sort of Boris Global Britain trademark stuff, uh, I'm not massively convinced the Conservative Party is going to go in that direction at any point in the near future. Um, so is it the Lib Dems? Is it kind of Change UK massively rising from whatever they are in the polls? Uh, I don't know. I mean, ultimately, I think it has to come from within the Labour Party. I just I, I can't see how you displace the current leader who's maybe not so disposed to all this stuff but maybe you know the closer he gets to power maybe he'll listen to the moderate forces in his party it's not impossible in terms of critiquing the third way uh, mm. and and that sort of politics and that sort of person the book opens with uh, bernie sanders attacking bill yeah. clinton in 1995 which immediately sets up which is great at the start of the book the conflict between the hard left uh, and the modernizers or the, or the moderates uh, and one of the things um that Bernie attacks Clinton for. And one of the things that Bernie has since attacked the Democrats for in that period and, and Corbyn similarly with New Labour, and it's a charge you hear a lot from the hard left, is, well, they didn't change anything structural. You know, New Labour could have um, made significant structural changes to the UK economy and to society and didn't. Firstly, do you accept the charge? And secondly, should that necessarily be the priority of centre-left, liberal, mm. uh, modernising governments? 
I mean, Bill Clinton's famous phrase uh, was that he was all about responsibility, opportunity and community. Right. And and the opportunity bit is, is the bit of relevance to this. Right. The, the difference the third way had was it wasn't necessarily about redistributing income per se, but it was about redistributing opportunity, i.e. investing in schools. Right. To give people the skills potentially to get on expanding the university sector. Uh, improving healthcare to keep people healthy enough to improve their own lives. Um, so I kind of, I, I fundamentally disagree with the charge, right? Because it basically asserts there's no difference between having Trump or Hillary Clinton in the White House, which is obviously just rubbish, right? Not just in terms of foreign policy, but um, but in terms of domestic policy too. And of course, this is something if you're Bernie, you would say because you're trying to fire up your base to win potentially a nomination or at least tilt the Democratic Party to the left, whoever wins the nomination. But... I think it's really unfair. I mean, at the end of the book, I, I talk about uh, Ted Kennedy, right? The sort of like liberal lion since the 1960s. Gordon Brown's great hero, actually, and great mate to some degree. Um, and, and, and Ted Kennedy sort of says in the middle of the Bush era, you know what? Like, look across the Atlantic. Look at what Tony Blair is doing. Look at his attempts to and successes in curing um, child poverty. Look at the minimum wage, the way it's rising in the UK. These are real substantive things that benefited people's lives and that people on the American centre-left saw, and indeed saw Blair even post-Iraq, actually, as something something of a hero, right, as, as the guy they wanted um, for a potential 2008 run. Uh, so, you know, Bernie Bernie would say that. But then it, the difficulty is, I guess, that American politics is so different, right, and left v. right, the spectrum is just way to the right yes. in terms of British politics. But in terms of, in terms of the UK, do you think New Labour and, and the Third Way of Moderates, whatever, you know, Blair mm. writes... It, it, does it matter, even if you didn't structurally change things? You know, because what the Corbynistas and other people say is, well, you know, it's all well and good redistributing the the some of the gains of a of a mm. of a booming economy, but those those things are easy to undo the moment you lose. That you need to leave a legacy that a, mm. a, a subsequent Conservative government couldn't dismantle quickly. Um, well, first of all, I think they can say that when they win three terms, ultimately, right? I mean, this, it's, it's a key point and it's a key flaw, I think, at the moment, you know, who, who knows, but with the Corbyn argument, which is they claim to be the party of the people who can't defeat a fairly insipid prime minister like Theresa May. And this is, you know, this is the whole problem, I think, that actually in politics, you, you don't get everything you want. You have to compromise with the media. You have to compromise with your own party, with, with business, because you need tax receipts to fund this stuff. Um, and I think to sort of, you can always say governments should do more. And I think it, it's entirely reasonable to do that. I mean, I, I, I criticise elements of, of new labour in the book, including the financial crisis, getting too close to the city. I think that's fair, actually, to somebody who that, that did happen. And I think some figures would say that today. But that's not the whole deal. And Iraq's not the whole deal. And in 13 years of government, you need to, to have a bit of a wider context. I think. And do you think with, just on, just on the you know, regulation of the banks and mm. things, should new labour then, in retrospect... Even if it was being true to a third way mm. ideology, have regulated the banks more. The basic insight of New Labour that you needed a buoyant private sector to fund public services was correct. The problem is there are certain sectors, financial services would be one, oil would be another, right? In the 1970s, I talk about at the beginning of the book, which fundamentally affect the rest of the economy. And if they go caput, then a lot of people suffer. And so essentially, yes, the problem for new labor, right, is how the hell do you regulate Wall Street, right? Even with, it's more Clinton's fault. If you're going to point fingers at one side of the third way, he's the guy who could have done something potentially about Wall Street, which will set um, things going. Um, and he didn't. And part of the reason he didn't, though, was he had a Republican Congress. So again, there's, in theory, absolutely yes. I mean, yes, basically is the answer. <laughs> but uh, how, how you do it is the difficult bit, I think, particularly if you're brown, right? I mean, how do you... How do you go over to the U.S. Treasury and say you should do this, and they say no? So, what's your counter argument at that point? Really? Yeah, so that's interesting because you, you, obviously the, the book rightly, and it, it was a very different relationship, Clinton and Blair. That there was a there was a personal element to that relationship, which which helped uh, helped fuel the politics. But obviously, Gordon Brown and Barack Obama led mm. at the same time, mm. leading the Democrats and leading Labour at the same time. For, for some reason, they didn't have the same connection mm. despite the what we you would presume is still an ideological one yeah absolutely i think i think part of the problem is that brown had been on the scene a long time and had been this huge global figure in terms of the imf in, in terms of being chancellor of the united kingdom uh for a long time and and barack obama was was very much a kind of bolt from the blue right had only been in the senate a couple of years yeah. the two hadn't had time to make those 
connections uh, beforehand. You know, they had certain friends in common like Ted Kennedy, but there wasn't the same uh, long period in, in opposition to work up friendships and so forth. And they're just different people, right? I mean, both, I would say, Blair and Clinton are more gregarious, more outgoing, a bit more... Um, charismatic maybe you know charming than uh brown and obama who are basically academics now i love academics don't get me wrong <laughs> but you know they're not always the most uh, most erudite i mean was it is, it is it fair to say as well that they kind of differed slightly in in, in the direction they wanted mm. to tell it obama was was reassessing and repointing america's strategic mm. alliances post iraq mm. and did want to be seen as perhaps a bit of distance between mm. the uk and america mm. yes yeah, certainly um and and you know i should uh, we should all give praise to, to Gordon Brown actually on the financial crisis uh, and his management of that, which was quite superb and way in, way in advance of anything the conservative opposition were, were offering. But but Iraq was definitely a dividing line, right? And, yeah. and I, I mentioned this a little bit in the book that Democrats do do begin to distance themselves from Blair, Brown and New Labour after Iraq because obviously New Labour was in that war alongside George W. Bush and therefore it's politically difficult to be seen um, to support it. Uh, the interesting counterfactual, and I have no answer to this, but what would Gordon Brown have done had he been prime minister in 2001, 2003? I mean, I, I wonder whether he would have taken the same line as Blair on Iraq. I suspect he might have done, but I don't know. Um, because he was a great, he, Gordon Brown was a great Atlanticist, right? He really respected the history of America. Whereas I think with Blair, the difference is he likes Clinton. He likes the New Democrats because they win and he likes the politics. And the fact that it's in America is important because they're the biggest economy in the world. But actually, he doesn't have that sense of history like like Brown did with the, with the Kennedys and and the 60s and and that and that background right? I mean Brown's a historian by kind of training so he's more looking in that direction but yeah. um I think Brown is Brown is more innately pro-American to his core than Blair actually in in the making and in the research of this book did it change your opinion about any of the individuals um I I wouldn't say drastically I mean the the, the the really good interview, actually, was was Neil Kinnock. Actually. Yeah, he's great. Have you ever had him on the, on the podcast? Yeah, he's amazing. Incredible, right? Yeah. Incredible memory and incredible charisma even now. And, even, yeah. and that voice, bloody hell. I mean, <laughs> you can see how people were bowled over by that. Yeah, he's wonderful. He really is. Um, so I always had a lot of respect for Neil Kinnock, but actually talking to him for that book and looking at his archive at uh, Churchill College, um, you really get, really get the sense of this is someone who was in politics for all the right reasons, basically. Changed his party and the country. Ultimately. Oh, no question. And as well as, and he does have a great voice and a great vast grasp of vocabulary, what he's also got a really good gift for is putting things into context. Yeah. And that sounds like such a basic thing, but huh. he can, even in that recent Thatcher documentary, he's so good at saying, mm. this was about this, and, and resetting your mind in the time in which yes. these decisions took place. And, uh, you know, that is so, what a tragedy that that is a rare thing these days. No, indeed. He's uh, he's someone who absolutely can can set the scene, who has that, has that broad spectrum of experience, right, and can and can describe why something matters rather than just the day-to-day politics, which is, like, difficult given everything moves at a billion miles an hour today, but he's very good at that. That is so true. Um, one of the things you mentioned uh, on Twitter uh, regarding the book um, is what Liam Byrne would call the three eyes: Iraq, immigration and inequality, uh, doing damage to the long-term reputation of uh, the, the modernisers and the moderates. We've kind of dealt with Iraq, and I suppose it, it goes without saying that that damaged Labour and, and its sort of liberal left wing. Um, in terms of immigration, is it the sense, do you think, that um, New Labour allowed too much immigration? Or is it the, the sort of dual problem that the right thought he was too liberal on immigration and the left thought he was too tough? No, I mean, the, the reason that Blair was very much in favour of... of expansion of the EU in 2004 was essentially correct. I mean, at the time, and you could argue now, right, they wanted to bring nations like Poland and and later Romania into the sort of Western orbit away from uh, the clutches of Putin and Russia. uh, And that geopolitical instinct was was entirely understandable. Secondly, you know, you had a growing economy, right, when these countries joined in in 2004, in the UK, I mean, and so there were jobs to to service. And uh, it's entirely uh, entirely understandable why why Blair um, Brown and Al went went along with that. The difficulty, of course, comes when the music stops, right? In two thousand and eight, yeah. and you know jobs are scarce and resources are scarce, and this this is tough. But this is not a, as Blair would say now. This is not a reason to kind of um, take a sort of Eurosceptic stance. This is a chance to engage with people who we trade with and so forth. So. I, I feel silly for asking this question because I've asked it to Blair himself, and I know what I think about it. But it's something that gets said a lot on social media, and that doesn't necessarily mean that that should be asked, but nevertheless, 
I, just today, I, and I didn't respond to it because I hear it all the time. This idea that actually, well, Brexit's all Blair's fault because you know, had he had he actually controlled immigration instead of opening, in inverted commas, the floodgates, we wouldn't have unleashed this level of Euroscepticism. I think it's an unfair mm. charge, but I'd be interested to hear what you think. No, I think I think it is unfair, right? I think it it is reasonable to assert that in. It's true. In parts of the country, immigration brought greater challenges than others in terms of resources. Right? If if it, you have a lot of seasonal work work in your in your locality and queues at the doctors get longer, that's a real problem for you, right? It's not something that should just be washed away by politicians. But the way to deal with that is to get more resources into the yes, communities exactly. rather rather than kind of pulling back from the world. I think the sort of I mean, Britain, A, is not uh, economically strong enough to do that anyway. But even if it were, right, even Trump, right, it, it's madness for America to pull back from the world in in, in that regard. So, uh, I, yeah, I think that's basically your whole thing on that opinion. Do you hear that much? Of course. I mean, it's, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, you know, it, everything is Tony Blair's fault after 2007. <laughs> so uh, the biggest issue of, of the day uh, obviously gets kind of parceled, uh, parceled into that. Um yeah, I mean, ultimately, it's 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 part of uh, the legacy, but only only to the sense that events happen after any government. I mean, Blair is part of Thatcher's legacy. It ultimately yes. doesn't necessarily mean that Thatcher caused Blair. Um, one of the things you, you you hit upon in the book is a phrase that people will become increasingly familiar with. It's an old one, but nevertheless, social media has again given it more life. Is this socialism versus barbarism <laughs> suggestion, which is, uh, and, and this is the Corbyn argument, and this is the Sanders argument, yeah. and and you can see how it you can see how it proliferates because, and it's something Jeremy Corbyn is saying to the country now is well, if it's either me, Jeremy mm. Corbyn, socialism, or the barbarism of of, of Boris Johnson, mm. pick a side and fight. You know, there is no alternative. <laughs> To, uh, to borrow the phrase of, uh, of Margaret Thatcher. Mm. I mean, do you think that message, just in terms of how uh, that cutting through to the public, I mean, you and I are people that are and listeners to the show, are people that will have heard that phrase mm. more often. Do you think that would work on the average voter, this idea that you are forced to choose between socialism and barbarism? Well, I mean, a part of the, I suppose, part of the, the criticism of, of the Blair area you heard a lot was people people didn't have a lot of choice with their vote, right? Ultimately, they had to they had to pick, they had to pick one of the two um, governing parties or potentially governing parties, and so I suppose that's what that's what Corbyn's trying to tap into. He's trying to stop those people who might think oh, I'll vote for Joe Swinson or I'll vote for uh, the Lib Dems or the SNP or whatever yeah. um, from from moving in that in that direction um in terms of being a sort of sellable election thing i mean i probably wouldn't say that in a tv debate unless you <laughs> really want to get twitter going maybe, maybe jeremy does um but i suppose you can do that via subtler means right if that's your goal you can talk about uh underinvestment in in police services in in schools and hospitals and 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 that's the thing that a labor government could do better than than the current lot um, I'm not sure if socialism versus barber. It's a bit of a kind of Twitter spat thing, right? As yes. you say, I mean, I'm not sure I've actually heard any human say that in the flesh. <laughs> that's true of a lot of Twitter, ultimately. So yeah. it's not necessarily uh, limited to that. Just in terms of socialism as a as, a, as an ideology, as, a, mm. as an economic um, model, mm. why do you think it has never really? I mean, obviously there are there are elements of socialism because we, we live mm. in a mixed economy. You could argue that the NHS is socialism, or that education, you know, state mm. education is socialism. Mm. Why is it never, do you think, really captured the mass public imagination? Uh, that's a really interesting question. It, it kind of draws me back to my previous book, which I mentioned was on was on Charlie Chaplin, who was a comedian, but also like a massive lefty, basically, um, in the 1930s. And he, and he was a, a British guy living in America, so he didn't really understand why uh, America was so obsessed with socialism as being the devil, right? Yeah. So there is an element where I think it has more salience here, certainly, um, you know, it's not shocking to hear a British politician describe themselves as a social socialist, whereas Bernie Sanders sort of deliberately uses it, I think, as a little bit of a shock tactic in terms yeah. of in terms of American politics. I mean, I suppose the counter argument would always be the forty-five government, right? In uh, New Jerusalem, Clem Attlee, yes. NHS. These are welfare state. Welfare state. These are all uh, hallmarks of of socialist uh, administrations. Um, the difficulty, I think, for socialists now is, is, is where do you go next, right? Because people, because to a lot of people, socialism means nationalisation, means the government running stuff, yeah. which in the 1980s, as I say in the book, they were deeply suspicious of. So how do you make the case for the same, the same sort of thing, right? But through other means, spreading opportunity, not necessarily spreading the power of government. Because I think people are deeply suspicious of, of government at the moment. I mean, deeply suspicious of everything, which is the problem <laughs> in terms of uh, politicians, the media 
comedians, footballers, you know, <laughs> extend the list as far as yeah. you want, essentially. Um, I suppose one thing I've always struggled with is 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 being left-wing necessarily being socialist. Mm. Because socialism to me, when I first got into it, was a kind of Donald Dewar socialism, which was a kind yeah. of poetic belief in the redistribution of opportunity. Yeah. And um, the sense the world was unfair and the state had a responsibility, not just morally, but economically, that Mm. if you spread opportunity, you'd get economic growth and all the rest of it. Mm. Um, I don't go in for, (laughs) at the same time as still believing that, nationalising whole swathes, not just of energy and rail, but but beyond that. Mm. And I just wonder, is is there a way of being left-wing without being a socialist or am am I being daft? I, su- I mean, I suppose uh, Tony Blair might argue it's New Labour, doesn't <laughs> yeah, yeah. uh, I mean, I, I, I think you're right that socialism basically hits the skids in the 70s, right? When uh, you have things like picking winners, the government investing in industries that just don't work yeah. and taxing people 83% and spending it on stuff they maybe don't like. Yeah. Uh, it's the 70s that, that, that is the decade that, of course, leads to Margaret Thatcher, the complete opposite end of the spectrum that then the third way tries to tries to reconcile, Right. Um, and that's the great genius of the third way, I should stress, that it's all sides of politics in the US, the UK and the West are trying to address the same problem, which is the West is becoming less competitive yes. with nations like Japan, China later on, Germany, etc. And so your solution there is either nationalise everything, if you're the government, the government can, can take us back to prosperity, yeah. people don't really believe that or vote for it. It's massive tax cuts, if you're the new right, but then what happens to the welfare state? What happens yeah. to funding stuff, schools, hospitals, etc.? And then the third way works out the new solution, basically, which is to encourage industries that will grow, uh, big tech, I mean, the Atari Democrat movement, the computer, etc., in order to create the tax receipts for progressive stuff, basically, yeah. down the road. And so it, it, it's really about new thinking, right? And I think that's the important thing about the third way. It really thinks about the world and tries to to get things like expanded opportunity through new means. And and to a large degree, I think, in the book it does um, for all the problems it, it brought. One of the things that I found so exciting about it, and still do, is the sense that it was constant intellectual political renewal, was that it was never just you nationalise or you privatise or you cut mm. taxes. It was pragmatic, mm. but it was that way of constantly thinking of new ideas and an acceptance that what works in, say, 2019 won't necessarily work in 2029 Mm. and it's okay to say Mm. we had that policy then we're going to get rid of it because it doesn't serve its purpose anymore and I I just that was probably the I'm not sure if I'm true in saying this probably the only time really well definitely the only time in my life that we had a government in this country that was open to getting rid of its own ideas and this idea that we're not just left we're obviously centre left but that doesn't mean that we necessarily will always have the same prescription Mm. yeah absolutely and and new labour does evolve right over those over those 13 those 13 years of power, and, and it, it passes the ultimate test, which it keeps winning elections. And I, I, I've said that before. I don't mean that as a kind of cynical <laughs> thing, but like, if you're appealing to the people, then yeah. that is the, the ultimate test of whether these things are, are working or not. Um, and so, yeah, it, it was about sort of constant, constant renewal. I guess the, the problem always comes is how do you keep renewing for, forever in terms, yeah. of, in terms of personnel as well as, uh, as, well as the policies, right? Because yeah. uh, new Prime Minister Gordon Brown, you have... Uh, a sort of new set of, of ministers trying to step up to the plate and then the economy hits hits the skids, of course. Um, and so th- th- there are there is a natural limit in the sense that the pendulum always swings back eventually. Uh, but I think 13 years of, of, of power is, is, is pretty good testament to the fact it worked for a long time. Yeah. In terms of its failings, the third way, one of the things that... Um, I don't know whether this troubles you, but certainly troubles some new Labour-type people that I would talk to is this sense that... In you're absolutely right. Obviously, electorally mm. was dynamite. Mm. Had a very direct <laughs> relationship with the public, and Tony Blair had a specific relationship with the public yeah. that was very emotional. That in the end, you know, he's paid a price for that because the fallout, uh, as it was perceived to be, w- was so emotional that voters really identified with him. And then, mm. uh, you know, the, the breakup was was severe, um, to put it that way. But there is a perception, even amongst people on the in, in the New Labour area, that perhaps not enough was said, or, or, or you know, that was done about it appearing as a point of principle, as well as it appearing as a pragmatic election-winning, mm. uh, you know, the right thing to do. Mm. If you look at the way politics has gone since, particularly on the left in the UK, is this idea <laughs> that it was kind of morally empty. Now, I don't think it was morally empty. Mm. 
do you think they should have been more alive and more aware of, for want of a better phrase, speaking morally? I think I suppose what the what the question implies, right, is that is well, a they're obsessed with elections, but b they're they're essentially cowards is how their opponents try and portray Blair and Brown, right? They, they don't take they don't take on the big fights; they take on the easy the easy meat. I think there are so many examples where this is false. Uh, big one being the national minimum wage, right? Everyone kind of regards this, particularly on the Corbyn end of things, but not just the Corbyn end of things, as some gimme. Yes. Some like policy, oh, that's always going to happen eventually, so don't worry about it. Like, could have been Blair, could have been Thatcher. <laughs> for all we go. And this is clearly not true, right? I mean, Kinnock saw this in the 92 election when speaking of national minimum wage. Oh, this is going to cost half a million jobs. This is going to cost a million jobs, two yeah. million jobs. Pick a figure, like add a zero to it, essentially, yeah. was the debate. And you had people like the CBI coming out against this policy. And yeah, I, I talk about how this is developed in opposition. Harriet Harman deserves a hell of a lot of praise and certainly for keeping it on the on the new Labour um, agenda. But they had that fight over the national minimum wage, right? Helped by the fact that Clinton also had a minimum wage in the US. They could point to and say, this works, it doesn't cost jobs. But nevertheless, right? Big political argument. New Labour took it on from a moral point of view. There are certain pay packets which are just scandalously low yes. and we're going to address it in government through a sort of big state solution, frankly, telling business you have to pay this amount, um, which was which was uh, incredibly brave. The other thing, um, briefly by way of example, is, is the windfall tax, right? Yes, on the privatised utilities. Absolutely, right, on the privatised utilities, on the sort of Thatcher, right? Yeah. You know, there's no difference between Blair and Thatcher, yeah. but yet well, as soon as Blair and Rowe come into power, uh, big windfall tax on the privatised utilities to fund the New Deal, right, yeah. to put long-term unemployed, particularly the young, back to work. Again, a kind of moral issue. There shouldn't be this generation of, of young British people who are condemned to uh, benefits, to condemned to this sort of uh, terrible lifestyle. We're going to do something about it. Um, and so New Labour is always a mix, right? It's encouraging a, a buoyant private sector, but it, it is involved in government intervention fundamentally to cure what it sees as, as ills and as moral ills. And that's always been the Labour Party's mission, and it always should be. In terms of Iraq... Uh, can you apply a third way analysis to it? Was intervention ideologically a third way thing to do? Um, well, uh, certainly in the, the dilemma of Iraq, right, for Blair is that it's different it, because the war is going to happen. So you're, you're, if you're Tony Blair, you're, you're, your options are not war or no war. The war is going to happen. The question is, do you join in basically with, yeah. with the Americans? Cause they're going to do it by that point. Um, Iraq is fundamentally a reaction to two things, which I suppose does make it a third way. In the 1980s, the sort of uh, ultra-pacifist defence policy, get rid of nuclear weapons, um, you know, very, very soft on defence. Some of that's caricature, but not a lot of it, actually. Um, And so you need to be different to that. I think Blair and Brown come to power with a certain sense that for the left, you need to be very pro-defence. Secondly, the 1990s and the legacy of not intervening in places like uh, Rwanda, Uh, and also Kosovo, where they did intervene, and it went well, right? So the recent history uh, says that non-intervention bad, intervention good. This is massively simplistic, yeah. but nevertheless, like going into uh, going into Iraq, that's the recent precedent. And so, I don't know if it's a third way or not. It's uh, certainly the third way does move the left on defence policy to a degree that is a bit more uh, traditionally uh, associated with with right wing parties, but. Uh, but, for, but again, for moral reasons, right, to get rid of a dictator in the case of Iraq, right, there's no perfect outcome. You either leave a dictator in power or you get rid of him. But then, as we've seen, problems follow. Um, so I'm not, Iraq's just an incredibly difficult situation, in, in my view. In terms of the, the third way now, I mean, we touched on it near the start of the, of the interview, but and the idea that the Labour Party is still the best vessel for it, mm. should it ever come round to that sort of way of thinking again? Do you think there is public support for it? I think the the, the broad outline, uh, yes, um, or, or in terms of all the, of all the things we're talking about. The, the question, the sort of structural question, is is how you do it without people saying, "Yeah, but Tony Blair," right? Which is absolutely not an argument. But nevertheless, I think it is an argument with a certain amount of cut through amongst some voters, not least Labour Party members, right? And so. You know, we saw, I, I mean, in 2015, I voted for Liz Kendall, for example, for Labour leader. Yeah, so did um, I, yeah. That's right, yeah. We are the 4.5%. That's, that's right. Just the two of us, 4. I think, 4.5 people, yeah, um, unfortunately, yeah. But, but It's good to meet the other two right. 0.25%. But what, what I liked about Liz, apart from that, you know, she's just a brilliant politician anyway, is she, like, she, tried, to, she tried to tell the Labour Party things it didn't want to hear 
But essentially, Labour members just stuck two fingers up to that message, right? And that's really unfortunate. I don't know how you broker that, right? How do you fundamentally tell members that you've been wrong for a few years, or rather the electorate haven't bought what you're selling to a sufficient degree to win power? Um, It's a shame that that seems so controversial when it's such a matter of fact to say that if Labour keep losing, we're heading down the wrong road. Mm. And when we used to do stuff like this, we used to win. Mm. That should be uncontroversial. But sadly... It might be a generational thing, though, right? It's just, I mean, you know, Liz Kendall was a special advisor. Yvette Cooper uh, was a member of the government. Maybe it needs years, frankly, for a sort of clean skin figure to come through. Like, like, Like Obama, right, who had no association with Iraq or some of the difficult questions before. Maybe it's a time thing. But it is just a shame that people can't learn the lessons quicker. That's one of the great frustrations, not just of the <laughs> Labour Party, but of politics. Is life in general. Yeah, yeah why aren't you adapting quick? And I actually think most British people go, well, obviously we, obviously, the British people are telling you the same thing. They go, yeah. well, we can't vote for this. I mean, if you were sort of booed off stage every night, Matt, when you think I might revise... If! Some of the- <laughs> but you might revise some of the material, right? And ultimately, Labour are still doing the sort of... 1980s stand-up act now. Nothing wrong with that, mate. There's <laughs> <laughs> nothing wrong with reheating old material. <laughs> no, but I totally get the point, yes, that of course... Um, I'm trying to think if there are any parallels to comedy and, and, and with politics, in the sense that, yeah, if you're getting booed off, you would... If a joke doesn't work, yeah. you're an idiot if you keep telling it. But I suppose the other thing is, right, if both sides are so rubbish, then someone's got to win. And this is the ultimate problem of British politics. Oh, and maybe, maybe Corbyn could be right, ultimately. You know, what happens if... The, the government just implodes, not yeah. an impossibility, and 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 he wins. He will take this as great vindication of you know the, the people have spoken. Twenty nine percent of the vote, <laughs> and somehow have snuck it or whatever. I right? have snuck into power. Um, so yeah, the, the nature of modern politics and the sort of multi party system is just not wasn't a feature of of the Blair era, which is makes it very different actually. Well, I mean, we're slightly straying away from the book, but just into your own politics. Well, I suppose it's an extension of that. I mean, in terms of the current state of things, would a move from first-past-the-post to proportional representation improve things, do you think? I'm, I'm traditionally, I, I am a fan of first-past-the-post because the thing the first-past-the-post does is produce strong government. The problem is first-past-the-post does not <laughs> produce strong government at the moment. So this yeah. kind of key, uh, this key argument has been somewhat, somewhat undermined. I suppose what it would ultimately produce a lot of the time is that great politicians phrase coalition of chaos, right? Um, But I guess you have that now within the Conservative Party or you have that now within the Labour Party. So there is an argument that it would be better if people were kind of funneled into different um, boxes and then sort of came together in a a formal coalition rather than just falling out all the time. Um, I don't know. I I think it's slightly a second order question in the sense that it would produce a similar outcome to now at the moment. But... Uh, we shall see, right? It, it, the problem with that is it needs a, it needs a party to propose it, and no one's going to do that. When, if you're the party in government, yeah, of course. Know, so let's change the system. <laughs> in terms of the Liberal Democrats, then, mm. do they embody the... Th- I mean, arguably they embody the third way more now than, than, say, Corbyn or Boris do. Yeah, true, probably. Um, but... Uh, but then they've become a bit of a they've become a bit of a vessel, right, for disaffected figures in both major parties. I suppose yeah. that that's what Change UK were trying to do, right? Ultimately, uh, earlier in the year, um, and what that moves into is is hard to say because you know Luciana Berger joined the party at the time of, uh, time of recording, and and Philip Lee, and and those two figures who would not have been well, weren't in the same party, but really wouldn't have been in the same party a few months ago now are. So it is going to be interesting for Lib Dem members actually. I mean, there's this like short term adrenaline rush of we're the party to whom everyone is is coming together uh, around um but what that means for in terms of a manifesto i don't know i don't, I don't know what their, their great pitch is going to be i mean obviously on brexit the pitch is clear but are they going to do that kind of we are the competent party as well as the the party with with the right solution on on, on europe but how does what is the distinction how would you see the distinction between the third way and classic liberalism um well, classic liberalism is uh, is ultimately is, is less fair. Is, is don't is don't intervene. Is having a very limited form of government. And the Lib Dems have always had this tension, I suppose, or the Liberals as they were have always had this tension between uh, less fair in theory, but actually, I mean, going back to nineteen oh six and Lloyd George yeah. and old age pensions, the free school meals, like big instances of intervention. Um, so I think now there are very few. Uh, parties in Britain you could describe as, as as classically liberal in the sense that 
a lot of politics is is arguing about uh, degrees of difference, Brexit being a massive exception, but um, <laughs> it's about arguing about uh, degrees of difference rather than these great kind of grandiose philosophical questions. And that's a criticism of the third way here, right? That kind of kills off ideology, kills off big, big, uh, big thinking. I'm not so sure that was a terrible thing, right? I'm not sure, you know, Tony Blair versus David Cameron seems like a sort of Hellissian day, right, in terms of the <laughs> offer to the electorate, but um, it's different. I mean, do you, uh, I, 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 I do encounter people who aren't party political. Mm. Well, they oh, they vote, but they're not they're not they they've never joined a party. Who during the new Labour period would say, "Oh, I preferred it when there was a real divide between Labour and the Tories," and I would say, "I prefer it when there isn't. Yeah. Therefore, I don't have to worry too much if the Tories win." Yeah. Um, but do you think you know is is it better to be more ideological or not? Um, well, I, I suspect that the, those same kind of people would not have been drastically happy with 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 foot versus Thatcher to some degree. Uh, I, I mean, a polarized political system um, can lead quite bad places, uh, as as we as we may apart. Not just because the offers are different, because the politicians are often different things, but because it breaks down that ground of reasonableness ultimately, yeah. and, and and civility, and and if you have an extreme polarization, then you are able to view the other the other side as as as, as, as either traitors, right, or people are trying to rip everyone off, and language becomes very um, extreme, right. If if politics is extreme and policy is extreme, then language becomes extreme. This spills in all sorts of kind of horrid directions we've seen in in recent months. I do, I do worry about a system, frankly, that's yeah, breaking apart. I'm so glad you said that because I do, and I, I do you think most people do. <sighs> That's a that's a big question. Um, <laughs> yes, I mean, I, I think, well, I think broadly speaking, yes. Um, the problem, I think, is that we're becoming so numb to it because of Trump. Ultimately, and it's been, you know, it's been yeah. good for your career, but like for the <laughs> the, 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 uh, the uh, but for the wider world, right? It, yeah. it does. It moves the bar, right? It moves the bar from situation of of reasonable people. Uh, you know, with differences, but articulating what they would do specifically about the problems facing the nation to just a personality contest where you sling mud at the other person, crooked Hillary, sleepy Joe, yes. and lion Ted, lion Ted. <laughs> it's uh, yeah, it's almost a badge of honour to have your sort of trumpy nickname, <laughs> yeah. but probably not, probably not good for the uh, for the wider discourse. Yeah, I, I mean, it, it's. Yeah, it, it would take Trump losing, I think, to kind of correct that. Because, of course, America does give a lead on this stuff, right? If the leader of the free world is is a nut job who can say anything, yeah. this is really difficult for responsible politicians from, from Angela Merkel to to whoever you want, to Macron, right? I mean, what, what do you do about this guy? And for wider wider electorates, if this guy becomes seen as the norm, yeah. then you can get a Trump, maybe we do, leading the Conservative Party or similar in, in the in the UK. So it's it's not great, right? I mean, tw- November 2020... I, Simple thing to say, but it's a huge election for for global global politics. What I really worry about is, um, you know, occasionally politicians will uh, use severe language or or, you know be rude and all the rest of it, and and that's that's always been there. But now it's the leaders of the parties behaving this way, and Mm. and it's not just that they're talking to people that have always been like this. They're creating a culture of it. Mm. People who previously would never have been this angry about mm. politics mm. are livid mm. and are talking about their neighbours and their friends and you know people they used to like in such total ways. Mm. I, I, I fear that, and I blame them all for it, Corbyn and Boris and um, other movements in the UK, for creating a real nasty mm. tone that is actually eroding an element of the fabric of society. But then I think, am I the only person who feels like this? Am I being, am I being slightly, uh, you know, silly in, in thinking about no, it? No, no, not at all. Way? I mean, I think it does it does erode trust in in politics, right? Because you've not only got the sort of the, the crazy leader figurehead, but for basically self serving reasons, the politicians beneath them, i.e., the sort of the sort of Matt Hancock's who want to stay in cabinet, end up contorting themselves into such obviously uh, self-interested positions, right? Things they don't agree with, things they didn't agree with two months ago, it's now just fine and they won't comment on it. And this yeah. erodes po- trust in policy across the the spectrum, right? And, yeah. and, and up and down parties um, that people have to adjust to the whims of <laughs> charismatic leaders who say anything. And this means that people don't trust any politicians anymore. 
Well, hope. For, I mean, what a note to end on. <laughs> I hope. I hope there is hope for the future. Except the big two in this book, obviously. One way you can you can re- <laughs> get back a bit of hope is to uh, is to buy and read uh, your brilliant book, March of the Moderates, which I'm av- I'm guessing is available. It is online and in bookshops for sure. Uh, I shall put a link to it in the show notes so that people can buy it online. Uh, Richard, thank you so much for coming in. Cheers, Matt. Thanks for having me. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you. Well, there you go, Richard Carr. Uh, fascinating bloke, and uh, I'm sure he will publish many more books in the future, so uh, I might have to get him back on in the next couple of years, next time he's got a book out. But the book is absolutely brilliant, and if... I mean, it's not even just four people who, I suppose, are into that sort of thing, but if you're into British, relatively recent British and American history, it's a fantastic read with some great interviews in it. Um, you can email the show, as I said, politicalpartypodcast at gmail.com. Always let me know where you listen. It's always a thrill to hear that people listen as far as New York. Uh, Mike O'Shea got in touch um, and he said uh, he listens uh, while lifting weights, uh, which I I can't recommend. Um, I don't want to have to put a health warning on this podcast. I don't want to be done for manslaughter should someone... um, well, injure themselves as a result of something that I or a guest have said. Uh, but do let me know where you listen, politicalpartypodcast.gmail.com, and let me know any thoughts and reflections uh, on any of the guests uh, that I've had on. Uh, tickets for next year's political parties are on sale already on the Other Palace website. They do sell out very quickly, and I get frequent messages from people who uh, tried to get tickets and couldn't, and then basically can't go all year. So do get on the website, theotherpalace.co.uk, Uh, to get tickets for all of next year's shows. Um, And, as I said, Brexit Pursued by a Bear uh, is coming to London on the 6th of October at the South Bank Centre in the Purcell Rooms and on the 12th of October at King's Place, uh, next door to The Guardian uh, in North London. You can get tickets for both those shows um, through my website, mattford.com slash live, and you can find all the details in the show notes of this show. Some amazing guests to be announced very, very soon. Um, thank you for downloading this. And as always, if you can leave an iTunes review, if you can spread the word, just get someone else to listen to it. It really does make a huge difference. It's great to be back and I'll see you next week. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.